As Senator Ron Johnson says, when patients entered the hospital, they lost all their rights. They became prisoners. Stella Paul is a medical writer who has been investigating what she describes as deadly hospital protocols during the pandemic and the financial incentives behind them. There were huge bonuses on what they were paid by the government if they used remdesivir and if they ventilated. In this episode, she breaks down what she and others have uncovered. If you go to the COVID-19 Humanity Betrayal Memory Project, has these thousand testimonies and they have the medical documents with them and they have analyzed them, which is extremely useful, and found 25 commonalities. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Yanya Kellick. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Stella Paul, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Such a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jan. You've been doing some remarkable work looking in back into the hospital deaths that happened around COVID-19. Um, we know, for example, there was a drug that's been in use, and as I understand it, is still in use in some places, although less, called remdesivir. You know, not, not a very good drug. It's been described to me by numerous doctors on this show as something that probably shouldn't be used. But you've kind of gone deeper and you've looked at this whole protocol and the, what I would describe as perverse incentive structures around a particular protocol that often led to bad outcomes. I want to explore that. But I, I want to start actually with your personal story because how you got sucked into all of this, right? I dedicate all my work in writing about the hospital protocol and in speaking about it. I dedicate it all to the memory of my late husband, who suffered very intensely. And his story is a bit different than the stories that I'm going to tell you. We're going to talk about the hospital protocol that you mentioned. His story is different, but I think it shines a lot of light on the, the protocol and the fact that the protocol was never necessary. My husband, when COVID hit, had been living in a nursing home for six years in New York City. He was paralyzed from a stroke and needed a lot of care. And when COVID hit, the governor, Governor Cuomo, signed an executive order 
forcing nursing homes to take COVID patients. And that was an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. That is medical arson. You are throwing a lit match of these COVID patients into direct contact, contact with the most frail and vulnerable people. And um, immediately people in his nursing home began dying, including staff with young children. It was utterly chaotic and tragic. And through a series of miracles, we managed to get my husband into a hospital, which was a very good hospital, considered perhaps the best hospital in the state. And I'm going to give you the date because trying to, to construct the history that we've lived through, it's already fading. So, much things, so many things have happened. So uh, the executive order was, I think, March 25th or 26th, 2020. My husband went into the emergency room April 1st, 2020. This is the absolute beginning of this whole epic experience we've been through. And the hospital treated him with hydroxychloroquine. So on April 1st, 2020, this was already known. They already were successfully treating it. They had put together their own package of hydroxychloroquine plus. And it worked, and it worked on my husband, who was a frail man who'd been in a nursing home for six years. He got back to baseline in five days. That was a regimen, five days. In five days, he was back to where he was and went back to the nursing home. So more happened there, but I just want to pause and say on April 1st, 2020, it was known in the, at least this hospital, and I assume others, that hydroxychloroquine works, and none of this was necessary. All these tragedies we've lived through, these lockdowns and kids missing school and vaccines and mandates and all these shattered lives, hydroxychloroquine worked. It was safe, effective, inexpensive, and they knew right from the beginning. My husband went back to the nursing home. He lived there for 10 months, total isolation, family couldn't see him, nobody could see him. He never felt the sunlight on his face or a breath of fresh air for even a minute, except for when he was loaded in a van to go to the hospital. And that was his life. He never saw an unmasked face because all the staff was masked. And after it, in January 2021, they debuted a shiny new miracle salvation of everybody, the vaccine. And the first place that got it was the nursing homes. I begged him not to take it. I did my research. I knew this was dangerous. He wanted to take it, he took it. Eight days later, he had a heart attack. So I feel like my experience touches on many aspects of this. We had the hospitalization and I personally know that this protocol, which I'm going to describe to you, was unnecessary. All we had to do was treat with hydroxychloroquine. I've lived through the lockdown, the isolation, and the absolute uh, uh, degradation of health that they cause, and I've lived through the vaccine, 
heart damage afterwards. So, so I passionately identify emotionally with the people who lost their loved ones in the hospital. I know it wasn't necessary. I feel their frustration, their grief, their, their emotional torture, and it resonates with me profoundly, and I want to help them. And tell me a little bit about your professional background then as well before we before we continue on so people know where you're coming from. Yeah, my name is Stella Paul is my pen name. Um, just to provide me with a little cover because I'm talking about hot topics here and I just would like that little fig leaf, but I am a writer, I'm a professional writer. Had an interesting varied career, but I have spent the last 15 years or so covering medical topics. And so when COVID hit, I was familiar uh, with uh, what I was seeing uh, of mainstream uh, medical establishment jumping on to a bandwagon and, for instance, of demonizing hydroxychloroquine. I was already very familiar with a pattern of mainstream media not being terribly interested in non-prescription solutions and uh, everything going in a prescription direction. And I saw the, the way things seemed to be leading to, hey guys, uh, nothing's gonna work until we get the vaccine. And I, th I, that was a familiar pattern to me from my years of medical reporting. Fascinating. Well, maybe a, a subject for another day, um, <laughs> because I, I do want to talk about you know what what you discovered um, essentially happened in the hospitals, and this is um, it's a bit of a story, and so I want to I want to kind of take it step by step. Um, but th the bottom line is the, the the protocols that were used for people who were ultimately admitted, and I and I want to add that. The protocol was strange from the perspective that you really the only time you were supposed to be treated is when you were already very, very ill, right? And, and what we know is that early treatment, in fact, um, with these various, you know, I think there's 20, maybe even 30 now different drugs and combinations that, that can treat COVID. Um, that, that's, that's the best way to do it. But if you, if you get it very seriously, now you've waited, now you get entered. It's a, very risky situation. And then there was these particular sets of protocols that were put in place that were incentivized to be used in a particular way. So let's dive in. To set it up, because it, it, we're going to talk about disgusting things and sickening things. And I would like to just set up the structure that allowed it to happen because people may have trouble believing this. And the first thing that allowed this to happen was that hospitals were shut down to all elective procedures, right? They were told you can't do hip replacements, you can't do stents, you know, all the normal hustle and bustle of the hospital disappeared and all the normal economic revenue, the big money makers of the hospital disappeared, which is very relevant to what happened. And this just happened overnight total transformation of the hospital. And the hospitals are told, no visitors, so your family couldn't be there. As somebody who's, whose husband was, was in medical settings for years and years, I know the importance of family. I can't imagine 
my husband going through these things without me by his side. But families were not allowed to be there. And this, in my opinion, was a key point because you were in there, you were sick, you were terrified, and your family wasn't there to protect you. The hospital were filled with family members. They would have joined together and tried to stop what was going on. So I want to say that, that mm -hmm. first. So we have a couple of things happening for starters, right? We have the situation where there's no revenue. So the hospitals are wondering where they're going to get money. They might be shut down even. That's what the administrators might be thinking. At the same time, there isn't this, you know, sort of the highly functional people around the, the, the person who's been admitted. That's right. And that's very unusual. I mean, right there, you see, this is an extremely unusual thing. The next... Um, uh, step in kind of setting up the structure that allowed them to do this protocol was the PrEP Act. The PrEP Act uh, was activated when COVID was declared an official emergency. And then the PrEP Act kicked in and it says in case of an emergency, pretty much anything goes in a hospital legally because it's an emergency. So they're doing what they can do. They're doing their best. So we're going to put a huge legal shield that's impenetrable over anything that happens in the hospital, any medication, any treatment, any action by staff, legally covered. And what that meant, we put it together with the first thing I said, you're in there all alone, your family's not there to protect you, and the staff knows that whatever they do to you, they're legally invulnerable. Now that's a bad combination. There's a couple of things that I've heard about, right? And one of them was, you know, that vento ventilators were used too much, right? Correct. And when someone's put on a ventilator, their 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 chances go down a lot. That's right. And and likewise, the other thing I heard about was uh, remdesivir. Yes. And Doctor uh, Doctor Merrick mm -hmm. actually, Merrick. you know. Mm -hmm basically got, his career was destroyed for his refusal to use this protocol when he was running That's the critical right. care unit, you know, in Norfolk. So he's, he's pretty serious about never using that drug. So, so tell me about this, how yes. this protocol plays out. Okay. It's all financially incentivized in the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion to deal with COVID, hundreds of billions to the hospital. But for the hospitals to really collect that big money, they had to do the treatments you just described. There were huge bonuses on what they were paid by the government if they used remdesivir and if they ventilated. And both those treatments are extremely dangerous and often fatal. But the government paid the money for them. And so everybody who comes to the hospital, you must get a test for COVID. If you're found positive, the hospital gets paid a bonus. If you're admitted into the hospital, the money starts, the money meter starts going. The remdesivir provides the hospital with a 20% boost on the entire hospital bill if they give you remdesivir. That's a lot of money. Remdesivir destroys the kidneys. Became notorious for this and acquired the nickname Run death is near because it came, became obvious very quickly that this was killing the patients. And it was used infamously so in an Ebola trial 
It was so bad they had to stop the study. It was tried in other illnesses. It failed every single time. So remdesivir was lying in this garbage heap of failed drugs. And Dr. Anthony Fauci came along and he said, this is the drug I want. This is the drug I want to be the first and only emergency use authorized drug for COVID and FDA approved drug for COVID. Uh, remdesivir will receive this emergency use authorization for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's give it to 28 day old babies. Now, an important point to get into right here is informed consent, which is a basis of ethical medicine. There was no informed consent in the hospitals. There was no information and there was no consent. And word got around quickly that remdesivir was deadly. So patients started showing up in the hospitals and they didn't want it. They had signs saying no remdesivir. I'm going to tell you some stories now to, to show you what was going on. Ray Lamar showed up at the emergency room in Mississippi and he had written here with a black Sharpie pen, no vent, no remdesivir. They gave him remdesivir without telling him. Christine Johnson came into the emergency room and she said, my daughter's a nurse. I discuss all my medications with her. I don't want remdesivir. And they gave it to her while she was sleeping. And now Michelle doesn't have her mom. And I want to tell you about Rebecca Stevens, because she read Epic Times. She was an avid reader and she knew about remdesivir from you. And she said five separate times documented in her medical records, no remdesivir. They gave it to her anyway. They didn't tell her. Now her five grandsons don't have their grandma. When you say there was no informed consent, right? You're saying they didn't tell people I mean, what I think of is they didn't tell people the possible harms of That's right. the protocol, or let's say remdesivir, since we're talking about that right now. But it, you're saying something more than that with these examples, right? This, you're talking about people, you know, volitionally going against the will of the patient. That's right. That's right. So there was neither. There was no informed consent of, let's sit down, and I want to tell you about remdesivir. Uh, it's known to damage the kidneys, and you're a kidney patient. So, you know, do you consent to do this? No, nothing. There was no conversation like that at all. Again, it was all covered by the PrEP Act, so they didn't have to. And there was and also this, there was also a mania, though, around following, there was a climate of fear, right? Like, I'm just, I'm trying to imagine the situation because most people wouldn't give people drugs that they knew were bad, right? There the was hospitals. this protocol, right. this is where it was like, we're doing the protocol. 
this is what the federal government pays for. They don't pay for other drugs. People were, Patty Myers came in and she absolutely demanded uh, ivermectin. Well, she couldn't come in, but her husband Tony came in and she demanded ivermectin. Uh, and she miraculously got a doctor to give Tony ivermectin for two days. And then she, he, he was, was getting better. Wow. And then she was told, no, not FDA approved. We can't give that. He didn't make it, but I want to go back to this concept of the other part of informed consent. You say no, it's in your medical records and they give it to you anyway. So I asked Michael Hamilton, he's a lawyer who's uh, representing bereaved families, and I want to say it's very hard to get lawyers. This is, this is a frustration of these families because lawyers say, I can't get past the, past the PREP Act. There's no way into these cases. Mm. But he's one of the brave and ingenious ones trying to do it. God bless him and all the others. They were using so many drugs on these people. That he's seen, and I've seen records, 50 medications these patients were given sometimes. Medications that were contraindicated for each other. And these people were put into a stupor. And when you were lying there, uh, out of it, you're on fentanyl and morphine, then they give you remdesivir. It's like a, I mean, it's, it sounds like a total madness, right? Among the, among the staff, it's kind of hard to, hard to comprehend. One of the most important things that I want to say to people watching is this is going on right now. This is still on the books and I'd ask people to listen carefully to what I'm saying and to please share this information with your family and friends. There's no backing down from this. There's been no backing down acknowledgement of the carnage that this has caused. There's doubling down. The FDA just approved a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, recently, use of remdesivir for patients with kidney disease for patients on dialysis. Remdesivir kills you by destroying your kidneys and they just approved it for kidney patients. How do you, how do you explain that? There are strong financial ties to everything that's happened. Why did Fauci pick this drug off the garbage heap as I described? It's made by Gilead Science. Uh, there are strong ties with people who from the NIH who testified to the CDC and said this is a good drug. They, they, there were strong ties with them in Gilead Science. And when anything is going on that seems uh, incomprehensible, sheer lunacy and madness, I suspect the answer is financial ties. And this is one reason it's very important that at least some of these lawyers representing families get their cases into court and we get into discovery and start looking at the documents and discovering what these financial ties exactly are. So I understand that you have, you know, talked to a great number of people that have that are aware of the process or saw the medical records, right? Like this, this, I'm actually curious how you understood the process and how you discovered how all these incentive structures work along this pathway of the protocol. Thank you so much for asking that question. It's absolutely key. 
We're living through a historical time, an, ep an epic time, <laughs> and these must be documented. We have to capture this history now, and there are many groups doing this. There's a group, uh, there's the COVID-19 Humanity Betrayal Memory Project. They have gotten a thousand testimonies so far, and they're getting more every day. And they, you, you can go online and see it, look it up, and I want to hat tip to the interviews. Who's doing these interviews? People who lost their loved one in the hospital, and they have volunteered to do this and get testimonies from other families. It's so painful for them, but they're doing it. And you can read these online, and there are other groups doing this as well. Right now, Children's Health Defense Fund has a bus going around the country, and they've got video cameras. People go in there, they tell their stories, and they're hearing dozens everywhere they go. People line up, they want to tell these stories. Now, the, and they all sound similar. It's all the same story. It's variations on a theme. The COVID-19 Humanity Betrayal Memory Project has these thousand testimonies, and they have the medical documents with them, and they have analyzed them, which is extremely useful, and found 25 commonalities. And the, when I take you through these horrible things I'm about to take you through, these are in the 25 commonalities. So these are, you know, over a thousand testimonies again and again, and speaking to the lawyers, the few lawyers like Michael Hamilton are, who are willing to do this, thousands of desperate families contact them. He's heard the, these stories again and again. It's like this ritualistic nightmare. So tell me what the, the commonality looks like. Yeah. The commonality is they, they isolate you from your family, they give you remdesivir, and they use the, the, uh, the shutdown of your kidneys that that causes and the retention of fluids to say you can't handle uh, food and water now. And they starve and dehydrate these people. It's horrible. These people are starving and dehydrated. You're sick with COVID. They're not treating the COVID. You're getting nothing for COVID. You're being poisoned with remdesivir and you have no nutrition in you. Then very commonly, they call in a psychiatrist to say that you're agitated and they start filling you with sedatives that also, shut, with like fentanyl and morphine, and that also shuts down your body's ability to respond and fend off the remdesivir. Now comes the next step, very common, it's a pat, you mentioned ventilation. There's a step to get you ventilated. They, because in your me medical records, they have to show the, the justification and the ventilation, which we'll get to shortly, was a big ticket item in terms of the, the financial incentives. So they wanted to move you along there and giving you oxygen was a pathway step. And they put, uh, yeah, it's called a BiPAP, machine, an oxygen machine that involves putting a mask on your face. And they crank it up to maximum pressure. And I want to say this is whether you need the oxygen or not. I mean, we have testimony from the mother of Daniel Alvarez, a 28-year-old special needs young lady who had perfect oxygen. And 
she was given this treatment and then ventilated and she didn't make it. And so this is a horrible feeling to have because they crank it up and it's at maximum pressure. You feel like you can't breathe. And so some patients try to take the mask off their face. And uh, I mentioned the 25 commonalities. And one of the commonalities is that people were put in physical restraints. And so when you try to take this off your, when, try to get it off your face, there, there are testimonies of these stories that people were, were tied, zip tied to the hospital bed. It, it's just kind of a nightmare what happened, but that was the justification in your medical record that says, well, we gave them full oxygen from BiPAP, they're still failing, it's time now to vent them. And that's how we moved along to ventilation, which was the big ticket finan uh, financial incentive item. It's just astonishing that, that, I mean, you think people are just brainwashed into following this protocol somehow? If they're, because they're seeing that patients are not, in many cases, you know, wanting to participate. That's the key question, that's what everybody struggles with, how the heck could this happen? How, how could I, people no, and do I can, this? I, the financial incentives we have learned through. I, I had no idea myself how powerful financial incentives can be, right? right? Until this was we a watched. Lesson. Lesson. Oh, it, it's, it was a huge lesson. So I, I accept that these very perverse incentive structures, where you get paid a lot of money to use a drug, or you get paid a lot of money to ventilate, ostensibly because you're doing a difficult procedure and the government's supposed to help support it financially because it's expensive, right? But if in a situation where you have no other revenue, well, okay, I, okay, it, makes, it, it all makes sense. But these are, after all, these are people doing this, right? That's the part that's difficult to fathom, right? That's what we all struggle with. Well, there's a couple of ways I've come to understand that. First of all, the hospital, you know, they demanded their staff be vaccinated. And the people who objected to that were fired. So those kind of people were gotten out of there. People who tried to give other kinds of treatment, let's give them hydroxychloroquine. Hey, let's do a vitamin C infusion. Uh, you know, let, no. Those people were denied and sometimes they were fired or they just left on their own. They couldn't stand it. Nurses like Gail McRae said, I feel like I'm participating in medical murder. I can't do this. I'm going to leave. So there was a kind of purging where people were fired and there was, you know, a natural purging where people just couldn't take it anymore and they and just left. left quietly, yeah. And then mm -hmm. Foreign, there were a lot of foreign nurses there. There were a lot of foreign doctors there. People from outside the regular system were brought in. There were traveling nurses. Wasn't the normal uh, hospital team working together. There was even a scandal that people had been working in hospitals, nurses from a, a nursing school that turned out to be fraudulent. I mean, there was all kind. Oh, in this PrEP Act, they, they, people could do things who actually weren't properly credentialed and in normal times couldn't do them, but now they could because it was an emergency. So there were all kinds of things going on that kind of moved around the staff and made it different. 
So there was, it's like, it sounds like there was just a selection for people who would rigidly, fo rigidly follow rules. Well, you've interviewed Dr. Richard Ammerling, uh, and uh, his quote to me when he ran my articles on this was, I was just following the protocol. You know, we were just told, told like the Germans, I was just following orders, and we were told, and Nuremberg knew that as an excuse. As Dr. Ammerling says, I was just following the protocol. Someday may there be a reckoning for all of this. So I think we were at ventilation. Should I pick up there? Yeah, so, so when ventilation, I mean, we know it's a very invasive procedure and, a and not a lot of people make it once they have that procedure. That's right, that's right. Ventilation is horrible. It's, it's so painful, you get intubated and uh, you lose your ability to communicate, to speak. You can't speak to your family anymore on the phone. And let me just add, that was another commonality in the 25 commonalities. They hid your phone, or they put your phone deliberately out of reach and your call button out of reach. They didn't want you communicating. So now even that, should you be lucky enough to have your phone, you can't speak because they're intubated. And it starts physically destroying the lungs, starts shredding them, and it gives you ventilation-acquired bacterial pneumonia. They're giving you pneumonia and they're not treating pneumonia. You don't get antibiotics. So just look at where we are. <laughs> You've got COVID, nobody's treating COVID. You've got remdesivir, which is causing a cascade of organ failure. You're starved, you're dehydrated, you're filled with all these crazy medications. And now your lungs are being destroyed and you've got pneumonia. It, it, it's not good. You know, I'd like to address the in, the issue of informed consent in regard to ventilation. Remember Ray Lamar showed up, no vent, no remdesivir. He got both of them. The doctor started screaming at Patty and wouldn't stop. You're killing him, you're killing him, until she finally gave in. And shortly thereafter he died. Is that informed consent? Michael Hamilton told me a story about a friend of his who was a nurse. She'd been working for 26 years in the hospital where she was hospitalized, and she told them, no vent. I mean, the ventilations became as notorious as remdesivir. People didn't want them, didn't want it. And the doctor screamed at her, you're refusing medical advice, and now you're gonna die and the insurance company won't pay your hospital bills. And she panicked and she gave in to protect her family, so she gave her consent. And apparently, uh, according to Michael Hamilton, that was a frequent tactic. If you disobey medical events, uh, advice, insurance won't pay, you'll bankrupt your family. How is that consent? Hmm. And they weren't allowed to leave. If you were in the hospital, you were a prisoner. This is a commonality we didn't discuss, and it's important. You were not allowed to leave. And Senator Ron Johnson says, when patients entered the hospital, they lost all their rights. They became prisoners. Families became desperate to get their loved one 
out of the hospital and they would call 911 and say, I want to report a medical murder. They're killing my mom, go to room 303. And the police would show up and they wouldn't do anything whatsoever. And a cottage industry sprang up of hospital rescues of lawyers like Ralph Larigo in Buffalo who families would contact and he told me that what he could get a, a case into court from the family asking to get their loved one out of there when he could get the court to hear the case and the judge ruled in favor and the patients got out and they all went home and got appropriate treatment all those patients lived when the judge refused to hear the case or ruled against them, all the patients died. And so this Gail Seiler was uh, in there. She was dying from her husband, Brad, showed up and armed with a printout of the Texas laws and letters from politicians like Alan West. And there was a five hour standoff with armed guards before they released Gail to him. So you were actually a prisoner in the hospital, denied your right to say, I want to get out of here and go home. I want to go out of here and go to another hospital where they treat me the way I want to be treated. Your human rights were taken away. So we are talking about something that is profoundly un-American, different than anything we've ever experienced. And we have to look at it with a very cold eye of where are we going with this? Both my parents are Holocaust survivors. My grandparents were murdered. And as a result, I'm very acutely sensitive to political changes and to the issues of informed consent, which is what uh, the Nuremberg trials revolved around. Uh, I'm highly sensitive to that. And I think we need to look very carefully and objectively and with a cold eye on, on what we've been going through here. And the thing is, again, it just comes, comes back to like, I just, I feel like people were, went mad. It's total madness. It's total madness. And uh, I was just speaking to people this morning, uh, drawing my attention to Hannah Arendt and her writings on uh, Eichmann and the banality of evil. Um, I think people just went along. This was their jobs. They had to protect their family's income and they were just doing what they had to do to, to keep going. And in addition, the people who were drawn to it, maybe, you know, that, that traveling staff, surely it must have attracted sadistic elements among the sure. <laughs> medical population. It's, t you know, tailor-made for them. So we've got you ventilated. Should we go on from there? So what happens now? What happens now is, it's my understanding, that's the last big ticket item that the federal government paid bonuses on. So what happens is that the, uh, the hospital calls your family and they say, we're, we're really sorry, your, your, your daughter is, is failing. Um, COVID is just so dangerous, we've done everything, but we, we want to ease her suffering. We're going to ease her suffering now. And so they give your daughter, your son, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father, 
somebody you love with all your heart and soul, and they inject them with a cocktail of fentanyl, morphine, midazolam, other very powerful, uh, dangerous drugs. And for most people, that's the end. So you say there's a thousand documented cases with medical records. You've discovered these commonalities around, around many of them to string together this rough protocol of what happened. Um, how many cases are there out there overall of people who were in hospitals given this kind of protocol? Do you know? That's, that's a key question and we need to have a forensic analysis. We need to get to the point where uh, there's an investigation and we take a cold hard look at this and we look if it's COVID, if the death certificate says COVID with renal failure, COVID viruses don't cause renal failure, remdesivir causes renal failure. So anything that says renal failure in there, we need to assume this death was at least helped to be precipitated by this protocol of remdesivir. And, and the other thing, you know, somebody knowledgeable has to come in and look. We have to get these cases into court and get discovery. I think the numbers are going to be staggering because hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were hospitalized. And if we look at their death certificates, they weren't given the stuff we know works that you talked to all your brilliant. They weren't given ivermectin. They weren't given hydroxychloroquine. They weren't given all this good stuff that the doctors you interview uh, recommend. They were never actually treated for COVID. So in a sense, they did die of COVID because it was never treated. But on top of that, all these other things. So when we, God willing, get to a point, we get a, 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 a real forensic analysis it's going to be staggering, in my opinion. Well, the, and the thing is that really it's just this lack of early treatment in the end that kind of precipitated that whole cascade in the first place. Because from what I understand, you know, people that were treated early, the vast, vast majority were fine. That's right? why I gave even my husband's story, because he was a frail man in a nursing home for six years, was treated with hydroxychloroquine and, and, and recovered. Why not a, a healthy 30-year-old? I mean, can anybody come up in their own memory or even in the history uh, of medical science when patients were told, don't do anything until it gets really, really bad. Don't try to stop this. It, it, it's frankly completely illogical. Well, that, and again, it goes back to this thing, like everything we described, there's you know the combination of a kind of mania with like, this is the model that is in my mind, right? Looking at everything that happened and what you're describing. Perverse financial incentive structures on the one hand. Yes. Right, and kind of mania. And, and also this sort of centralization and selection for people who are more compliant who will just follow the rules for whatever reason. Right. The combination of these things leads to terrible outcomes. Um, and I, I agree that these incentives, I agree with you, I didn't realize how powerful financial incentives are. Actually, I'd like to get to that, how in my own life how this touched me. And I want, what I want to do to, is get to what happens after the death because the financial incentives continue. Big financial incentives were paid out upon uh, 
upon death by the when, federal when government. When it was COVID, when COVID was flagged as the cause or associated. Right. right. It was very important to get the COVID death certificate. Right. Sometimes families were never given their body. That's one of the 25 commonalities. The hospitals to fail, uh, refused to release the body. That happened. They refused to release the body. Astonishing. They paid families. They sent letters to families from FEMA saying that they would, because they died of COVID, they would pay their funeral expenses. They would pay their funeral expenses. Now, Patty Myers got that letter and she said, I feel like they're trying to shut me up about what they did to my Tony. And she took the $9,000 and she used it to make a documentary called Making a Killing about her husband, Tony, and about other people who died this way. That's what happened to people who got, who had COVID on their death certificate. My husband didn't have that because his circumstance was different. He died of a heart attack after getting the vaccine in the nursing home. I got a letter two or three months after he died. I got a letter on official New York FEMA stationery saying, if you can find a doctor willing to testify that your husband died of COVID, will pay his funeral expenses. Now, I saw that, and I feel physically ill, and I threw that letter in the trash. I wish I'd kept it as, as uh, evidence. But Michael Hamilton told me that a lot of people got those letters and a lot of families took it because they needed the money. Um, I don't blame anybody who needed the money and took that money. Sometimes it was the breadwinner of the family who died and the, the family was in terrible financial straits as a result of that death. So I don't blame them. But what that did was essentially commit fraud to get that COVID death certificate so that payout happened and in my opinion, to keep driving up the numbers of deaths attributed to COVID. So what's in store here? There's, there's some lawsuits being attempted, but there's, of course, the liability, the shield, so to speak, makes, would make that very difficult. What, what, what's in store now? I would like to leave this interview with a, with a tribute to them, these wonderful people. They have support groups online every day of the week sometimes three or four support groups going, and I'm on some of them. And these are wonderful people from every walk of life, every background, all across the country, and they come together and they share this bond. One thing they're just trying to do is help each other get through this nightmare. Um, so um, if you go to um, the COVID-19 uh, Humanity Betrayal Memory Project and, and start communicating with them. They'll help you find a support group if you need it. That's key. Um, they'll, you'll join with them in the struggle to find lawyers uh, willing to do it and to raise money, to raise funds for it, which is, is important. It's so hard to raise funds for this and trying to to raise awareness of it in the public. Um, 
I, I want to leave you with an image of something that happened this summer. This is, there is a spiritual element to this battle that everybody on these calls feels. We all feel the spiritual battle of good versus evil that we've been drawn into. And we all feel that we're greatly unmatched. Uh, but there's much talk of David versus Goliath and David won. And so I'd like to leave you with an image, if I can, of um, the New Jersey group of former Feds Group Freedom Foundation, which is one of these activist bereaved armies, the New Jersey chapter, very active, hat tip to Charlene Delfico, who's doing such a good job. And I want to leave you with an image this summer how they're doing everything they can. They gathered on the beach and they linked arms like this. They looked up at the sky and they had hired a plane to fly by on a busy summer day where there were beachgoers there. The plane flew by with a banner about the hospital death protocol. And that's how David is trying to fight Goliath. Well, Stella Paul, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Stella Paul and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed that last episode, you should check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. And you can find it at unseencrisis.com. Mm -hmm.